The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. We have, in the month of September, been looking at the ultimate questions as we compile together the essential components of a Christian worldview. So, let me invite you, if you've not already, to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Romans chapter 2. And as you're opening to Romans chapter 2 in the New Testament, you can find the page numbers there on your bulletin if you need them for the varied Bibles that you might have with you. Uh, what we've been doing in the month of September is we have been walking through a topical sermon series on the ultimate questions of the Christian worldview, and we have already done the questions of origin and meaning. Today we're looking at morality, and next week, Lord willing, we're looking at destiny. Now, it's a little bit of a departure from our normal practice here because we normally practice what we call systematic expository preaching where we are working in one book of the Bible and moving through verse by verse and chapter by chapter toward a conclusion of that one book. But in this topical sermon series of ultimate questions, we've been looking at a few different places in the scriptures to go to the topic of origin, where we come from, the topic of the meaning of life, what it's all about, the topic of uh, morality, what is right. And so today... Uh, we're looking to Romans chapter 2, and uh, hopefully that will become clear in, in just a moment. Uh, but we are using what Paul says to us under divine inspiration in Romans chapter 2 to provide the context in which we try to understand what it is that God has said to us. Now, uh, just another quick introductory note here is that as we've been evaluating these aspects of the Christian worldview... We are trying to also hold against the Christian worldview some other worldviews as well to demonstrate the fact that there are competing aspects of these varied worldviews. And we're looking at some of those very particular ones uh, like uh, nihilism and uh, scientific materialism. And we've looked at some of those. But today what we're going to do is contrast a secular worldview with a Christian worldview on the issue of morality. And as we do that, we are trying to demonstrate the fact that in the Christian worldview, there is an internal consistency and a coherence in such a way that we can say that being a Christian and having a biblical worldview makes sense. It makes sense. And as we say that, we are saying that a secular worldview does not make sense. And that point is very powerfully illustrated on this issue of morality. So, just uh, as we're looking at Romans, what Paul is doing here in the opening chapters of Romans, to just give you the context before we read it together, what Paul is doing is he is trying to establish universal realities across all of the human race that is true for everybody in all places in all times. He is establishing universal truths about the human race, and we'll see what those are in Romans chapter 2. So if you don't already have your copy of God's Word open, please do make sure you have it open, and let's pray and ask God's blessing upon His Word, and then hear it together. Let's pray. Father, uh, we ask that as we open the scriptures, which we confess to be your living word, that you would speak to us in the power of your spirit, 
that so inspired the Apostle Paul to record these words for us without error and without contradiction, that we might be those who are illuminated in our minds and transformed in our lives to live for your glory. Lord, open our eyes, give us ears to hear, give us a heart to receive your word today. Come in the power of your spirit and speak powerfully to us. We are ready to hear your word. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. And now, people of God, hear the word of God from Romans in chapter 2, beginning in verse 12 through verse 16, under the heading, God's judgment and the law. This is the word of God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. May he write his eternal truth upon our hearts today as we consider the elements of Christian worldview about morality. So what is morality? What does it mean to be moral? Uh, many people would answer that question differently. And in fact, many people are often confused about the difference between ethics and morality. But suffice it to say for our time this morning in the book of Romans, that morality is the distinction between right and wrong. That is, I think, as simple of a definition that we should work with today. Morality is the definition and distinction between right and wrong. And when we look at the component of the Christian worldview about morality, we're asking the question, what is right? And who says? And what does it matter? How do we know what is right, especially when we live in a context in which many people are saying, this is right and that is right? It is conflicting and it is confusing and we as Christians need to develop a biblical Christian worldview to navigate these things effectively. So we need to know how is it that various worldviews approach the issue of morality and how can you as a Christian believer develop that worldview when it comes to morality and what you believe about what is right? Does what God says about what is right influence and affect the way you believe about what is right. So we need to know these things. And it is these issues that Paul is speaking on broadly here. He is describing the human condition. So you need to keep, keep open chapter 2, but just very quickly, turn left once to chapter 1, and we will pick up a context here as Paul describes the human condition. Back in Romans chapter 1, look at verse 19. And Paul is speaking about here about, again, universal realities. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. And the them there is everybody. All people, especially the Gentiles, but all people. For what can be known, verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in what? The things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Do you remember two weeks ago we looked at the issue of origin? Where do we come from? And in that we affirm the fact that we believe that uh, we are the product of a divine creator who makes us in his image out of nothing, who rules over us. And God has in his creation, Paul says, in the things that have been made, put the evidence of the reality of his existence on such grand display that no one can say there isn't a God. No one can come to the conclusion that there is no God because Paul says by looking at the world that exists, where did it come from? A divine creator. That's his point in Romans chapter 1. That all people are under obligation to believe that there is a God. Humanity is without excuse. It is acknowledgement that God exists. And so, therefore, creation is a witness. Creation testifies. But creation is not the only witness that there is a God. And that's what he's getting at in chapter 2. So go back to chapter 2 and what we're looking at here. Because not only does creation provide the witness that God exists, creation, but also, secondly, you see it, there in verse 15. Not just creation, but also another C word, conscience. Creation testifies to the fact that there is a creator, but also verse 15 says, you have a conscience. And your conscience is also a witness of this reality. Paul says in verse 14, when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, and there he is referencing the fact that God originally gave the law to the Jews in the Old Testament. But he says the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who don't have the law, but they do what the law requires because it is written upon their hearts and it is laid upon their being in such a way that it is within them to know that there are certain things that we must do. For example, what we talked about in the Sixth Commandment, that it's wrong to murder. Everybody knows that. Paul says, because it is written upon their conscience. And so creation is a witness. Conscience is a witness. But the greatest witness is, of course, Christ. But creation, conscience, and Christ is the threefold witness of the reality of God's truth in the world today. But Paul's point here in this section is that the law is written on the heart and our conscience bears witness. The conscience, if you like, is like a compass that points north and shows the way to go. This is what it's right. And humanity is created in God's image with a conscience that God places in our very being, the reality that we know what is right. But of course, the Bible also tells us that we live in a world that is after the events of Genesis 3, which therefore means that this is a fallen world. And everyone's conscience as a compass has a magnet next to it. 
And so the way God has made us is broken and our consciences are defective. The compass of our conscience doesn't point north because the magnet of our sin and our fallenness is pulling the direction away from what is true and what is right to things that are wrong. And so this issue of conscience and how God made us is really the background for the reality of what we're talking about when we're talking about morality. That we as fallen people rebel against God's will and truth. And when God says that something is right, humanity says, no, that's wrong. This is right. And so this issue of morality and the building up of a Christian worldview as it relates to morality is what Paul is talking about here. And so what we're going to be doing is laying next to the Christian worldview the realities of a secular worldview and how it comes to conclusions about the issue of morality. So how does a secular worldview answer the question, what is right and what is wrong? Now, what we're going to do here is stick on this point of a secular worldview and evaluate it and illustrate it a few times and then go to the Christian worldview, okay? So if at a certain point you're listening and you're saying, that doesn't sound right, good, it's not supposed to. But how does a secular worldview answer the question about right and wrong? And it answers it with this thing that we call moral relativism. Everything's relative, this or that. Because the secular worldview is founded upon this idea that we are nothing more than divine, uh, biological accidents. We came into this world by benevolent accident of a lightning bolt hitting a mud puddle and therefore you exist or whatever the case might be. It means that in a secular worldview there is no transcendent reality. There is no existence before existence. There is no place for an outside authoritative moral code to come upon humanity. And so therefore, in a secular worldview, morality is determined entirely by me. Because in a secular worldview, humanity itself is the highest purpose of all things. And so therefore, humanity gets to determine what's right and wrong. Now, this is illustrated in two different ways. In a secular worldview, morality is relative, but it's relative and decided by one of two ways. It's either relative according to the individual or relative according to the society or the culture. And we'll say what we mean here in just a minute. But first of all, a secular worldview by individual moral reasoning, subjective moral reasoning goes like this. And this is a very popular way to say it these days. Well, I know that that's your truth, but this is my truth. And you can have your truth, and I can have my truth, and they can have their truth, and everyone has their own truth, right? Do you hear that in just conversation and vernacular today? Subjective ideas of truth, your truth, my truth, your truth, and they don't have to agree because they are subjective truths, okay? How does that work when you're playing baseball? If there's no home plate umpire or any umpires, right? The batter says it's a ball. The pitcher says it's a strike. And the pitcher's truth is that it's a strike. And the batter's truth is that, what do you, it's a disastrous moral consequence. Subjective truth claims and subjective moral reasoning don't make sense. Now, listen very carefully. That is not to say that the person that does not have a Christian worldview 
whether you want to call them uh, agnostic or an atheist or whomever, scientific materialist, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, whomever they are, it doesn't mean that they're not moral people. Do you understand that? Because an unbeliever can be moral. The unbeliever can help a person across the street just as well as the believer can. It is not to say that the atheists can't represent morality. They can. The atheist can be moral, just like the Christian can at times be immoral. But the point of fact is that the atheist has no basis for their morality. And this is where atheism and scientific materialism contradicts itself. That because they hold to no consciousness prior to the existence of humans, there is no pre-existing reality of right and wrong. And that means, because this world came into being randomly, and by random existence, and because our life is nothing but cosmic byproduct, how does a cosmic byproduct get to determine what is right and wrong? There is no such thing as natural law in a secular worldview because they reject there are universally given truths about right and wrong. And they might say, well, whatever is right is that which helps human flourishing. But whose human flourishing? Yours or your neighbor's? Now, what's the consequence of this? How many of you this past week saw the illustration uh, that uh, the abortion practitioner uh, found in Indiana with something of 2,246 fetal remains stored in his garage from abortions he conducted between 2000 and 2002. I mean, his license was shut down long ago, but he kept these fetal remains. Is that wrong? Is it wrong? If you operate from a subjective worldview on the issues of morality, who are you to say that that's wrong for him to do that? He is able to establish on his own subjective grounds, this is what's right. Now, put that aside for a second. Is that wrong? Of course it is. But in order to say something is right or something is wrong, the secular worldview must borrow from the Christian worldview. Because the idea of rightness and wrongness the idea of a moral code assumes a moral law. And the existence of a moral law assumes a moral lawgiver. And the existence of a moral lawgiver assumes a moral law judge. It betrays itself on the issue of rightness or wrongness. And subjective morality does not make any sense. But that's the individual subjective morality. There is also cultural subjective morality where they say, in this time, in this place, in this culture, this makes sense. Now, how often have we seen cultures change about what they think is right? Every culture has always changed its opinion on rightness and wrongness. And if you're not aware of that, we're living in the midst of the greatest illustration of that. For society specifically, they say, ethical codes must be developed by societal consensus. So however much the most people believe is right, that's what's right. Or whoever's in the most power gets to say what's right and then influences it on the society. And if you want an example of that, the Third Reich. There was sufficient enough social consensus that this is what is right that it occurred. Subjective, cultural, moral reasoning. Now, if you want an example of this in the world today, 
We count on society to regulate certain norms for us, right? What side of the road are you going to drive on? If you suddenly choose to drive on the other side of the road, you're going to end up in trouble. But we count on society to regulate norms for us, and there's no better example of this than the dictionary. In this past year, Merriam-Webster added 530 new words to the dictionary, and, and it's helpful because, right, we have new vernacular and new vocabulary being added to us all the time. Among the new words were, and if you don't know these, you get to look them up, but some of your kids might know them, deep state, dad joke, and free solo. Okay, dad joke is now in the dictionary. <laughs> okay, everybody knows what a dad joke is. But if you don't, you can look it up in the dictionary. But Merriam-Webster added a new definition of the word they. Talking about societal norms, there is a new definition of the word they, declaring that the pronoun they may be used to refer to a single person whose gender is non-binary. Meaning that the dictionary now establishes a cultural norm for a society that says, on the basis of a social construction of language, that the pronouns he and she are now offensive and constricting to those who identify as male and female but don't wish to have their identity constricted by the limits of linguistic identification by way of a pronoun. And so he is no longer a he, he is a they. Now besides being grammatically disastrous, that demonstrates the fact that it's absolutely nonsensical, but it is subjective. Morality changes in subjective morality by the culture when there is no outside source of authority. Okay, put all that aside now for a second. What do you believe as a Christian believer about the definition of morality? Where does it come from? Who gets to say? Is it self-determined? Is it changing? In the Christian worldview on the issue of morality, we maintain that God is the source of the physical world and the moral world. And that God's morality is expressed in his goodness and in the goodness of his laws and principles that he's revealed in scripture. Therefore, morality isn't what you say. It's what God says. Which is, of course, a fundamental non-starting place for a secular worldview. But if you have any concept of goodness, it must come from a source. R.C. Sproul says it this way, God does not rule by referendum. He's not taking a vote amongst his people about what is right. God, as the supreme being, declares what is right. And because we are made in God's image, every single one of us is essentially a moral being. You have a conscience. You have a sense of morality from the fall. And even though you reflect God's image in a shattered way because we live in a fallen world, still you have, Paul says, verse 15, an innate desire by the way God made you to know what's right. But the problem is, is that we try to repress it. We know, and all humanity knows, but we try to repress it. Christian morality is that the law of God is written upon the conscience and that God has placed it in the hearts of all people to know not only that he exists and how to relate to him, but also how to treat the world and the people in the world with dignity and value God according to every individual. This is exactly what Paul is after in Romans chapter 2. And even though the secular worldview might attempt to say there is no God, 
and there is no morality every time you make a value judgment. Every time you say this is good and this is bad, you are proving what Paul says in Romans 2. You know, and it is written upon the heart. Christian theism says that there is such a thing as an absolute standard by which all moral judgments are measured. There is right and there is wrong. And many of you are probably astounded that you live in a world in which that is a controversial statement. There is right, there is wrong. The Christian worldview assumes that all of that is the case. And I have a couple encouragements for us out of this as we're building this Christian worldview. But let us remember that we are not the measure of morality. You are not the measure of your morality or your neighbor's morality. It is not for you to say. It is for God to say. And the illustration, again, that Paul gives in both in Romans 1 and 2 is that everybody knows this. And the, the, the way I always picture it and the way I always teach it is that if you take a huge beach ball and put it in the middle of a pool and it's inflated and you want to submerge the beach ball, well, first of all, you look ridiculous. <laughs> but second of all, what happens when you try to push it down? It just keeps coming up. And, and this reality of morality, the reality of morality, is like the beach ball that constantly comes back up. And as hard as a culture and as hard as a people may try to suppress God's truth, it's not possible. And so when it cannot be successfully repressed, it is simply made to be the enemy. We can't defeat it by way of denying it, and so we'll just make it the enemy. So, what does, what does this mean for us? And again, I'm demonstrating the fact that we're in topical sermon series and not expositional sermon series. The idea itself comes out of Scripture, absolutely. But what, what does what Paul says here mean for us? when we live in a world that is dominated by a subjective moral reasoning and we want to hold a Christian worldview of objective moral truth and objective moral reasoning, how shall we then live in this world? I hope that's something you care about. Right? Because you have co-workers and neighbors and family members and this issue creates friction does in my family. So, people of God, if you are criticized and if you are attacked on these issues, you are not the one that created the truth of morality. Morality is not yours to define. And here is a very important point that people who operate in a naturalistic, secular worldview want us to change because they believe that morality can change. But when we have these competing worldviews, this will always be a clash. The Christian worldview maintains that morality is objective and does not change. So when a secular worldview comes to you and insists that you must change, it's because they presume that it's possible for morality to change in the first place. 
And therefore, there's a non-starter in the issue to begin with. And so I've said this once before, and I want to say it very, very clearly to you, that if you as a Christian believer have not made peace on this point, you must square with this reality that you must be, at the end of the day, okay with being misunderstood. If your primary value is to have everybody think well of you, you will have no backbone of Christian morality. If the primary virtue is everybody's opinion about you, you must be, at the end of the day, okay with people misunderstanding you. And if you need encouragement in the midst of that, that's what the church is for. But no one has a better understanding of how the world should operate than the one who made it. And no one has a better understanding of how humanity is best to flourish than the God who gives meaning to our lives. And that is the basis of all God's morality, what is best for his creation. He is not looking to repress the joys of his creation, but to maximize the joys of all creation in fulfilling their will and purpose inside of God's plan. And God has the best definition of what that means, not any one person. And so, therefore, if we profess the Christian faith, here's a final point for you. And again, I keep asking you to pay attention to these things, but pay special attention to this. That if you profess the Christian faith, then you need, you and I need to be consistent with its morality. Because if we are going to accuse the secular worldview of having an inconsistent application of their worldview, we as Christian believers must maintain a consistent application of ours. God's morality is not a buffet from which you may pick and choose. It is an objective standard from which he declares to the world what is good and what is right. And so, people of God, when it comes to your own worldview, don't be inconsistent. Don't pick and choose on God's truth. And when we live before the watching world in this way, we will demonstrate what Paul says, that this is true, that there is a God, that he has called out to all people to repent and believe the gospel. And that by living a genuine life before a watching world, we will provide that testimony. Origin meaning morality. May we reflect God's truth in the world today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by your grace that you teach us what is right and teach us what is good. We pray that we might be consistent and Lord that you would show us grace and kindness when we have been inconsistent that we might provide a, a genuine testimony to you in the world today. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.